Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Coming up on today's podcast, I'm speaking to Dr. Aisha Awan, who is a GP and director of REACH Northwest, which stands for the Refugee and Asylum Seekers Centre for Healthcare Professionals Education. In this conversation, Aisha explains how REACH supports these clinicians to become registered in the UK, why this work is so important, and some of the challenges that healthcare professionals who are refugees or asylum seekers face during this process. She also shares some personal stories of people who've been through the programme and how they're now thriving as doctors in the NHS. I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr. Aisha Awan, who's a GP and a clinical lecturer at the University of Manchester and director of REACH Northwest, the Refugee and Asylum Seekers Centre for Healthcare Professionals Education. REACH was set up in 2003 to help support refugee and asylum seeking healthcare professionals to register their qualifications in the UK. And she's here today to talk about the work REACH does. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Aisha. Thank you for having me. I've done a little bit of a brief introduction there, but can you explain exactly what it is that REACH does? So we offer an option of ethical in-country workforce recruitment to deal with the shortages that we have of occupations such as doctors, nurses, um, and other allied health professionals. It's incredibly cost-effective, it's socially responsible, and it allows refugee and asylum seeker healthcare workers that might be living in hotels or in accommodation and really not being able to perform their professional responsibilities a track to get their registration back to a professional body to get back into work and help our huge workforce shortages in the NHS. How did you personally become interested in this area of work and and why did you want to get involved with, with REACH? So I was working at a practice where a large proportion of our patients were refugee and asylum seekers. And I saw the problems that these individuals would face Some of them were really educated. They'd left successful lives, nice houses, an affluent way of life, often academic backgrounds behind. And the impact that that had on them, living in a one-bedroom flat with their entire family when actually they were used to much more. And the stimulation that they didn't get academically, uh, the fact that they didn't have people to talk to about interests or things that were going on in the world. And it had a huge impact on their mental health. That impacted their children and their families. And you could see that if there was a solution here to make them and integrate them into local life better, it would just have better outcomes for everybody. And when the role at REACH came along, it was looking for somebody with experience of having managerial experience. And I'd worked at Salford CCG on the governing body there. It needed the academic experience as well. And I was working at the University of Manchester. And then it also needed this element of trying to reinvigorate a project that had been running for about 18 years at that point, but just needed help in increasing its membership and digitizing the work that had been happening. And so it really appealed to me and I applied and got it and I was over the moon. It's uh, the one job that I would do for free and actually said that at the interview panel I feel very, very fortunate to be working with our members. It's a pleasure. It motivates me. And I like the fact that I'm helping try and sort out the massive issues around workforce shortages in the country, because it's something that impacts me as a clinician and it impacts a lot of my colleagues. What exactly does your role at REACH involve and how does that work alongside your GP? Are you still a GP as well? So um, alongside still being a GP, the REACH job is incredibly varied. It can be from speaking to the GMC about a member, speaking to BMA charities, 
sharing our work that we're doing at REACH with other organizations that might want to set up similar programs in other areas of the country, liaising with research organizations, because actually there isn't a lot out there about what we've been doing for 20 years, because we've been so focused on delivery. Um, it's about supporting our members and making sure that when they're going through difficulties that we acknowledge that and help them with the pastoral element. A lot of my work is communicating by email, attending meetings, financial documents, HR issues, a lot of stuff that's quite yeah, managerial. But I do still get to do some teaching, which I thoroughly enjoy. Obviously, some of the more strategic work with policymaking at a regional and national level. So how does the process work when a refugee or asylum seeker healthcare professional contacts you? What happens to them? How do you help them? So we first need to check that they have the appropriate qualifications and that that primary medical qualification is of the standard that would be acceptable to registration bodies in the UK. So we do something called EPIC, which means that their qualification is ratified and checked. It's sent over to the states where they have this massive database to look at these applications. We then make sure that all the pastoral elements are okay. Their housing, you know, do they have food? Do they have transportation money? Do they have a computer? I can give an example of an individual who came, who had arrived in the barracks and was incredibly isolated, was a single male. He came to us literally four days after having left the barracks. He was homeless, being supported by a church, had no clothes, had no money for food because he was an asylum seeker. He had no access to public funds. This was during the midst of the pandemic. So everything was pretty much shut down. We were able to get a laptop to him because the most important thing is just to get them feeling like whatever their profession was. He was a doctor, but to get them feeling and re-engaged and not feeling quite so lonely. So we got a laptop to him, got him attending lessons. And in the background, we were sorting out um, his housing, getting some food parcels across to him, making sure that he had money for the first few weeks while we got everything else sorted. And he started attending classes. They start with English, so to pass the OET, the Occupational English Test, first. That can normally take anywhere between three months to a year, maybe sometimes two, if somebody's English is not particularly good. Then passing the PLAB exams. We offer a longitudinal program, which means that we integrate all the professionalism training, learning about cultural adaptation, how the NHS works, and all the little things that really aren't taught if you just do an English lesson by yourself and then just pass the PLAB exam by yourself how to communicate to colleagues, how to talk about equality and diversity issues that a lot of our members might never have experienced or spoken about before, or actually might have been illegal in the country where they came from. So we have a big job to do when we do that with a very strong pastoral thread through the entire program. Our English program and clinical program are fully integrated, so they aren't separated. You pass the English exam and we forget about it. We carry communication out throughout the program. At the end of the program, we offer a clinical placement of three months where somebody's supervised by a hospital clinician because we're associated with the Northern Carolinas. We can offer them a job at the end. So everybody leaves with a job if they want one. And the majority of our doctors and nurses go out within the six months to 18 months that it takes them to pass through the program, go from somebody who might not have been working into a higher rate taxpayer professionally qualified role. It's a pretty comprehensive program right from the beginning with little to no English to the end of a person who is registered and able to work in the NHS. About how many people do you kind of help in it across a year? 
At the moment, we have um, 74 members in the program, and it can vary anywhere between sort of 60 to 120. So it is, it is variable depending on how many people we get in that particular year. It has in some years been six to 10, and more recently up to 30 members that can pass out over the course of a year. I was just thinking, how long does it take someone to get through? Does it, is it, does it really depend on how much English they've got? Is that the big factor? How does it work for a doctor? They, they have to then register with the GMC when they get to the end of your programme. Uh, yes, you're correct. English tends to be the biggest sticking point. They're often very intelligent people who have no problem passing the clinical elements of the exam and in the majority of cases, but it tends to be the language that tends to be the biggest sticking point. On average, our programme can take anywhere from 16 to 18 months for people to complete Outliers do exist. We've had somebody pass through the program in under three months. And then we've had other individuals who've been around for three or four years because they just can't get that English element or because life happens, you know, mental health issues. When there's war going on back home and you're worried about friends or relatives, the cost of living crisis has meant that people have had to drop out for three or four months in order to to have enough money to be able to support their families. So there are factors that we have to take in. This isn't one of my regular medical students at the university. There's often additional things that can bumper that progress that we try and uh, accommodate. I'll tell you about Jamal, who's one of our alumni from REACH. He arrived from Syria in the UK without his family. His family and his children were still in Syria, and he had to escape because the Syrian regime had decided that doctors who helped anybody who was opposing their government, so a patient rocks up into hospital, you don't know what they are. But if you treated somebody who was against the government, you were, in essence, against the government. So doctors faced huge persecution, and he had to leave pretty much overnight, leaving his young children and his wife behind very little English. And his initial priority was just to gain refugee status. And then it was to get a family reunion. So he was able to bring his family safely back to the UK and settle. He then went about passing his OET exam. But that took a while. He worked in restaurant kitchens. He was exploited for a period of time because he didn't know what his rights were. And when we found this out, we had to obviously go through the correct channels and ensure that he was looked after and find him alternative employment. In the meantime, he found out that family back home were being bombed and the city that he was from had pretty much been decimated. It took a huge mental toll and he stopped studying with REACH for a period of six months. His progress with his English slowed. He had mental health counseling through us, educational support and time away from the program. And he expressed to our tutors multiple times that he felt like giving up, that he didn't have the mental space to take on going back into medicine, even though he loved it. And this was somebody who had six years of war experience in an accident and emergency department. We got through that. And he then passed his English OET exam in 2019, completed his clinical exams very quickly afterwards in 2020. And he started training at Salford Royal Hospital. He volunteers at REACH and helps with our members now with their PLAB exams. And he's currently working as an ENT surgeon at the hospital. His children are in education and thriving. He's a higher rate taxpayer and his son is the captain of his football team. That's one person over the space of two years and the change that they've gone through. Every time I see him around the hospital, he's got a big smile on his face. He's the person who will take all the shifts because he's like, wow, I get to work again and I can do this. And he's so motivated to support the NHS. 
I am so impressed by the resilience of our members. It really is inspiring. They have had to do medicine in another country, in another language. I think if more of our medical students, more of our colleagues had access to them, it would just be really transformative. So inspiring individuals. Most of the people who come through, are they specifically from one region or do they, are they from all over the world? No, they're from all over the world, actually. I um, put a little list together from our newly formed database of all the countries that we have members from. And it's a list of over 34 countries. And it's varied over time. So when the program was first set up, it was a lot of ex-Soviet countries. And then there were a lot of refugees from the Yugoslavian War. Then obviously Iraq happened and there were a lot of Iraqi refugees. And recently it's been Syrian and Ukrainian. We get people from who are Tigrinian. It's very, very diverse. Turkish members, people who are escaping persecution for religious, political reasons, and war. So it is really diverse and whatever is happening in the world impacts the kind of people and the backgrounds of individuals that we get through at Reach. Do any of your members go on to become GPs? Do we get GPs out of this as well? We do. Excellent. And increasingly so. So in the past, we had been uh, probably the first 10 years particularly focused on, on hospital doctors. But over the last decade, we've increasingly had more and more GPs pass out. In the 18 months over the course of the pandemic, we had five people go into GP training and recently had what we call an intercultural communication day where one of our ex-members or alumni came back who was a GP and was able to recruit six people who hadn't thought of general practice as a career at all. It is something that appeals. It just works better, especially with those who perhaps aren't able to get back into their specialty again because it's such a long road and they might be near 45, 50. So near the end of their career where they might have seven years of specialty training ahead of them, it's an option that does allow them to get back into practice sooner. One of the things that that struck me was seeing one of our members as a GP trainee taking a history from an, a refugee patient. And there was a, a connection there that couldn't be replicated by myself, by anybody else. There was an understanding there. And I think that support of seeing somebody like yourself when you go into a professional setting like healthcare is so important. It then again highlights the importance of making sure that our health professionals are reflective of the populations that we look after. Our GP trainees and our REACH GPs are so well placed to support members like them if they choose to. It was an incredibly eye-opening experience to, to witness. And I think the, the patient's definitely benefited from it as well. So is that how it works? So basically people will go through your program and then they'll go into specialty training. It's very variable. You asked me earlier about GMC registration, so I might touch on that. Our members get GMC registration after they passed their PLAB exam. So once they've done their OET, PLAB 1 and PLAB 2, we help them get registered with a GMC and we get them that job at the Northern Care Alliance or one of the Northwest hospitals that they're closest to. So that's how that, that registration process works. I've looked through our membership over the last 20 years, and we went through every single person that we could find that was registered with REACH. And taking into account that the vast majority of these individuals are from ethnic minority backgrounds, whose first language was not English, 
And we know that there is a higher propensity for people to face sanctions, medics to face sanctions from the GMC, from ethnic minorities. This is a really at-risk group. And for the last decade worth of data, we were unable to find any one of our members that's been sanctioned by the GMC, which is a, you know, touch wood, a huge testament to the strength of the, the program and the additional support that we offer in getting people ready for practice in the UK. Um, and also to escalate when there are issues so they feel that they can bring up issues that they're having. And also being able to offer that longitudinal support even 10 years on, our members can contact us and say, we're having difficulties with things. So might need a bit of support. And we'll provide that. Yeah, no, I was going to ask about that. So basically, that once they've gone through your scheme, it's not like once they've got jobs, that's it, that's the end of it. They've still got kind of links to you in the future. Is that how it works? Some of them fly and never come back home, so to speak. <laughs> but we're also part of their trauma. So one of the things that was really evident to me when I first started in a role was I presumed that there would be a great affection for Reach and what it had offered. But some of the members have said, you know, we've Reach has been amazing and we've really liked being part of it, but they want to put it behind them because it's something that they've had to do in order to regain their profession. We're part of that trauma journey. We're not just part of that success. It's something that they've had to do. It's been a, a roadblock. So I value the work that we do, but I don't overestimate the impact that it has on people's lives. You've talked a little bit about the pastoral support that you provide to people. What sort of things do you do? And, and is it a sort of a standard thing? Or It sounds like the people you're dealing with, they've obviously got quite varied needs and requirements. So what kind of support do you provide to them on that side of things? Our pastoral um, element is exceptional. So we have Jude Riley, Michelle Brennan, my clinical and English tutors within the team, our administrative support. Every single person is part of the pastoral team, even if they're not named for it. So I have had members of my team turn up at somebody's house at two o'clock in the morning because they didn't have any heating and brought in an electric heater. Um, we've had very sad situations where um, we've had to arrange burial costs because um, people have passed away and they don't have any money to, to bury loved ones. So we organize that. It's linking up with local charities and community voluntary sector organizations that might be able to support our members. It's liaising with schools when members who've lost that community and village that it takes to bring up a child and don't have that additional support. We create that within reach so we can help them communicate better with their children's schools, support them when things are challenging and difficult. We help them with legal support, signposting them to organizations for financial, educational, charity support as well. So it is incredibly varied what their needs are. We try and accommodate them. Over the pandemic, it was getting IT, so getting laptops out to everybody. And we worked with a great charity called Computer Aid, who were able to get within the space of six weeks enough laptops for us to get 60 of our members access to their educational materials online. And we had one of the highest pass rates over the course of the pandemic because of the access to IT facilities, which we previously hadn't had. And just to put that into perspective, that means that some of our members with children were using one phone for the space of eight to 10 hours a day between two children and two adults trying to use devices to study and work. And these are people who are training to be doctors, um, looking at tiny little screens for up to eight hours a day. So it made a huge impact. 
how does all this sort of work alongside all the rules and regulations around what asylum seekers can do? Are the people who are on reach, are those people who've had their asylum claim already assessed? We know there's massive problems with the asylum system in this country at the minute. There's a huge backlog of people waiting for their claims to be assessed. So I was just wondering, at what stage do you start helping these people? It is a really complex answer. It basically depends. We can accept people who are, we do take asylum seekers. You know, if somebody comes off a boat, they don't just come to us. They have been ratified and said that they have claimed asylum in the UK. So that's one thing. Asylum seekers are now able to work in the UK after six months at a job that is a, one of the shortage occupations. We work with Duncan Lewis. It's a firm that helps and supports underprivileged individuals and our members form part of that in making sure that they could start working because it was particularly during the pandemic, we were short of doctors and we had doctors on our doorsteps who'd been working very recently. And so that asylum process changed. It's insanely complex. We get legal advice. We make sure that we're not taking anybody that shouldn't be with the program. But we always come from a place of compassion and understanding. But yeah, it's, it's pretty, the bar is pretty high. You actually do receive inquiries from people actually out of country as well who want to come here and claim asylum. How does that work? Can you help people come here? No, we can't help people come here. But after the pullout in Afghanistan, I had emails from medical students and from doctors and from women who were saying, I'm a nurse and I have nowhere to go and I can't work anymore and support my family. Can you please help me get out? I've worked with the coalition forces. I've worked with the British for five, six years. It broke my heart seeing those emails. And there were plenty of people who needed help. And we have a lot to answer for about how that went down. It's incredibly difficult when you end up with emails like that in your inbox and you can't offer people support. We work to support our countries. Yeah, definitely. It's challenging. It's an incredibly challenging position for these individuals. And they are desperate. One of the things obviously you've talked about is that we are facing a massive staff shortage in the NHS, you know, across all roles. And this seems such a great initiative to help sort of address that problem. You did say it must be much more cost effective than sort of training someone up from scratch. So on average, it costs around £250,000 to train a UK medical graduate. So an undergraduate. And it takes five years. For a REACH doctor, it can take between six to 18 months. And it costs less than £20,000. We do cover the Northwest, and we're very lucky that there are other programs that might not be as comprehensive as ours, but that do exist elsewhere in the country. There's a program in Scotland, there's Ward in Wales, there's Building Bridges in London um, that work with the Refugee Council, there's a Lincolnshire project. There are programs across the country. There should be more because this is something that we need to access. These are ethical in-country doctors, nurses, physios, pharmacists, dentists that the NHS needs. And we can get them contributing to our society, helping their mental well-being and helping them regain their profession. It just ticks so many boxes. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Aisha. I think your programme just sounds such, it's such a brilliant scheme and it sounds like you're doing such amazing work supporting these people. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And thanks so much to Aisha for taking the time to talk to me. 
If you're enjoying our podcast, please do think about giving us a rating. And you can subscribe to Talking General Practice wherever you get your podcasts. I'm back next week, so please do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up to date with the latest news and access a wealth of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 